Paleo Hackers, welcome back to our video podcast. With me today, I'm super excited on the other end, Dr. Perlmutter, author of the two New York Times bestselling books, Brain Maker and Grain Brain, um, medical advisor to Dr. Oz and board certified neurologist. Dr. Perlmutter, great to have you here. Really excited. Clark, about this I call. am delighted to be here on Paleo Hacks. Thank you. So we did this intro before, and then we kind of had a technical difficulty. But the question I wanted to ask you straight off the bat, uh, basically the New York Times bestseller list is a good indication of kind of what the public is interested in. And it used to be they were interested in books that told you to get on a treadmill to lose weight and cut calorie restrictions and eat your whole grains. Now we've seen the shift to more of a holistic approach and, and, and stuff as what you do as well. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, in the time you've been doing these books and, and in this field and researching it, how have you kind of seen the public's response to what you do shift? That's a, it's a really good question. And uh, I, I was actually, oddly enough, thinking about that this morning, uh, that there has been, you know, we were way out there at one point when uh, our colleagues, our mainstream colleagues really uh, rejected what we were doing and, you know, the whole notion that, that I, as a neurologist, would be paying attention with my patients uh, to things like lifestyle choices, including diet and exercise, was really difficult for them to deal with. You know, years ago, 20 years ago, I was in a very mainstream neurology practice hmm. and all we did basically was diagnose and say adios, meaning we would make diagnoses with our patients and that was about as good as it got. So the literature that relates lifestyle choices, including diet and exercise and sleep and stress management, et cetera, uh, that relates that information to brain health has been around for quite some time. And I think, you know, what I've done is really been able to correlate, uh, collate that information, bring it together. Uh, and that's what my books have all been about. And clearly they've been widely accepted. Brain Brain is in... 27 countries now. So, I mean, I get, I get copies of Grain Brain sent to me and I don't know what the language is anymore. I, I have to ask the publisher, what is this language? I got Czech, uh, Brazil, uh, Portuguese, and uh, Swedish uh, just yeah. this week. But So I think that what we're seeing with the general public is a real shift towards a sense of wanting to become empowered. And empowerment is uh, basically having knowledge. And, you know, my mission has been to provide that knowledge. The word doctor doesn't mean healer, it means teacher. And to be sure, the, the knowledge that I purvey in the form of books and podcasts like we're doing, etc., is really based upon, at the end of the day, peer-reviewed science. So I do my best to make sure that my positions and statements are validated by what is appearing in our most well-respected literature. And, you know, I think that what you're commenting on is this huge trend uh, that we've seen gain so much traction away from the notion that fat is bad and we need to eat our lots of grains and carbohydrate-rich foods to a notion uh, that welcomes fat back to the table and reduces our consumption of carbohydrates. Sure. And, you know, there have been plenty of people out there talking about this for, for quite some time, but just a couple of months ago, uh, the United States Dietary Advisory Committee came out with a statement that was really quite compelling and very supportive of all of us, saying that, you know, what's making people uh, fall apart is really their consumption of carbs and sugar. It's not the fat that we eat. Uh, an incredible study was published 
uh, last year in the Journal Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was a meta-analysis that included more than 500,000 participants and demonstrated that there is no increased risk of, of heart disease in people consuming lots of the dreaded saturated fat that you'll get from eating eggs and uh, using dairy products and using coconut oil and, and eating meat. So uh, how incredible it is that we're finally able to embrace the notion that the way we've been eating for tens of thousands of years really has served, served, us, served us, us well, allows you and me to have this conversation right now because we made it to this point. We have to look upon our food choices as representing more than just their nutritional content, their fat content, carbohydrates, protein, and the micronutrients of uh, minerals and vitamins, etc. We have to look upon our food as representing information. And what I mean by that is there is this beautiful dance that happens between food as an environmental effect and our own DNA. The food that we eat changes the expression of our own DNA. That's called epigenetics. So every bit of food that you consume is really trying to cause your DNA to express itself to, to maintain health or not. And now it's very clear that the diet that the so-called experts have been recommending for the past few decades has been sending non-healthy signals to our DNA. And, you know, that's been a real cornerstone of, of so many of our common Western diseases uh, that are, you know, really uh, fixated on inflammation, or, 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 where inflammation plays really a pivotal role. So, uh, you know, it, it's worked for a couple of million years. There, if it works, let's not try to fix it. Reinvent the wheel. You touched on a lot of stuff in that, and I, I, I want to um, get to it. Of course, this show, you know, we're going to probably touch on the brain and then eventually get to the gut and some really solid how-tos for the people listening at home that they can start applying and, and use this information in their everyday life. Um, so I'm in Barnes & Noble, and I, I pick up grain brain, and I see the loaf of bread and the shape of the brain. And I'm wondering what what the heck's this book about, you know? And I and I start going through it. What sort of information would I find in there? What was what's the book really about? Well, the book is really predicated on the notion that food matters. Who knew? And uh, you know, right off the bat, that challenges mainstream medicine because we as physicians do not really, uh, in general, have any training in nutrition, uh, nor do we really validate the importance of nutrition in terms of human health. And the, the real guts of, of Grain Brain focus on the role of diet as they relate to brain health. We live in a country of 5.4 million of us uh, with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and that's a situation for which there is no treatment, there is no cure. And yet, we know that lifestyle choices have a huge role to play in determining who gets Alzheimer's, who gets uh, autism. Uh, who gets uh, things like uh, multiple sclerosis and uh, other degenerative conditions that are preventable. So the, the real purpose of Grain Brain is to focus on the notion that our choices play a pivotal role in determining the health of the brain. Who knew? And, you know, uh, the criticisms of that have been uh, that, no, we should just focus on developing really great drugs to treat these problems. And I've, hmm. I, I said that doesn't work for me. Maybe that works for other people. doesn't work for me. Yeah. So the real tenets of Grain Brain are 
that sugar and other simple carbohydrates, by raising blood sugar, are toxic to the brain. And that a surefire way of increasing your consumption of, uh, of high-carbohydrate foods is to have a diet that's focused on, on grain. Whether it is whole grain or refined grain, these are foods that raise blood sugar, and that's lethal for the brain. There's a direct correlation between even subtle elevations of blood sugar and risk for developing dementia. Uh, an interesting report was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2013 that took a group of several thousand individuals aged 65 or older and then determined over about six and a half years who got dementia and who did not based upon one single measurement. And that single measurement was at the beginning of the study, they measured their blood sugar. And what they found was even having a blood sugar with mild elevation of like 105, 110, well below the levels of diabetes, these individuals had a substantial risk for developing a disease for which there is no treatment, dementia. So that's the kind of science that grain brain is really built upon. We also explore how gluten uh, leads to issues that increase uh, inflammation and the pivotal role of inflammation in neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's. And really went into a, a really great discussion based upon current peer-reviewed science about how that happens. And then BrainMaker comes along and what BrainMaker focuses on uh, is again extrapolating the notion that diet matters but now looks at factors like inflammation uh, and blood sugar and uh, other issues uh, related to the body's metabolism through the lens of the bacteria living within the gut. This uh, microbiome, the hundred trillion organisms that live within us, because truly they are profound mediators of human health. And as we learned in BrainMaker, the diet suggested in the previous book, Grain Brain, is spot on in terms of being validated, being good for the gut, therefore good for the brain and good for the heart and good for the rest of the body. But beyond that, we really begin to understand the importance of foods that are fermented and rich in good bacteria, as well as foods that are rich in what is called prebiotic fiber, and that is fiber that will enhance the growth of these good bacteria. Recognizing from a paleo perspective that our hunter-gatherer forebears are estimated to have consumed around 135 grams per day of prebiotic fiber, whereas typically an American today will consume about five grams each day. So we need lots of prebiotic fiber. And my mission here is to get the word out that people need to amp up their consumption of prebiotic fiber-rich foods. Jicama, which is a Mexican yam, Jerusalem artichoke, asparagus, onions, leeks, garlic, and one of my favorites, dandelion greens. So these are foods that contain something called inulin that nurtures in the colon the fermentation process that these good, healthy, probiotic, life-sustaining bacteria can, hap can make happen for us and therefore pave the way for better health for us and even better brain health. I want to talk about food consumption. So I know based on what I learned in university and just anatomy and physiology classes, learning about the brain and neurology and everything, they would always say, glucose, it's the only source your brain can run on. 
It's the only source your brain can run on. And then they would then say, you know, that's why you need to consume sugars and carbs and you need it for your brain food. <laughs> and now, you know, the paleo community in this almost alternative holistic approach is saying fat. That's what your brain needs to run on. That's really what's healthy for your brain. So kind of what, what, what's going on there? Is that the same thing we were talking about earlier with kind of the old way versus it the is. new way? And, you know, um, the, br- the brain clearly uses glucose, but certainly not exclusively. Um, it, it, it's certainly uh, a question I get frequently, and that yeah. is, oh, you've got to have glucose in your system because uh, the brain is desperate for glucose. Well, it, it's just patently wrong. Uh, it turns out that the brain is wonderfully functional on ketones, on breakdown products of, of fat. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll digress for a moment. There's even a medical food that people can buy because it's been shown to be slightly effective in Alzheimer's patients that really amps up the availability of specific fats for the brain uh, to burn called beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the chemical. That's not the, the name of the product. You can do exactly the same by drinking uh, MCT oil, medium-chain triglyceride oil, or even just taking a tablespoon or two each day of coconut oil. Hmm. And you enhance the body's ability to burn fat and to become slightly ketotic or in ketosis when you've cut your carbs. So that notion is really uh, interesting but doesn't hold water. Uh, Gary Taubes has written a book called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. It makes a really interesting statement in that book, and he says... Uh, and as a matter of fact, mild ketosis is probably the condition that humans have been in uh, since we began walking this planet. So we never had carbs. Where would we have carbs uh, until the past you know, few hundred years to any significant degree? Um, you know, wheat and agriculture began nine to 10,000 years ago, which was basically just yesterday. And prior to that, we didn't have wheat fields and apple orchards, and we wouldn't stumble upon cartons of orange juice dangling from a tree. So basically, we had a very low carbohydrate, higher protein, and certainly a much higher fat diet. Fat is a, a terrific food when you're trying to survive because it's, it has twice the calories per gram in comparison to a protein and carbohydrate. So fat turns out to be a super fuel for the brain. Dr. Uh, Mark Matson, M-A-T-T-S-O-N, has done a lot of research uh, in this area and has published them in journals dealing with aging and in the function of the brain and has recognized that when the brain is burning fat as a fuel from a mildly ketotic state, uh, that it is far more efficient in its metabolism, creates less damaging free radicals, and actually produces more energy molecules Mm. called ATP. So uh, when you shift over from a diet that's based upon sugar and carbs and get the grains out of your diet and stop eating these carbs, your body's going to shift over to being uh, able to burn ketones. So you go through over a period of a couple of weeks what's called keto adaptation. And once you do that, some really incredible things happen. You find that your energy actually improves and uh, you feel uh, more alert. Your brain functions better. And who knew? You could miss a meal or two and the world won't come to an end. When you are cycling your blood sugars day in and day out because your diet is based upon pounding carbohydrates, you know, you, you start your day with a short stack of uh, whatever they are, you know, pancakes, and you pour some syrup all over that and then maybe have a croissant on the side or a bagel. Wow, you're, you're just exploding your body with blood sugar. And what will you drink? There's a drink that's become very popular 
Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you about it. You're, you're going to see it uh, on, and when people have breakfast with you. Uh, it's incredible because 12 ounces of this contain nine teaspoons of sugar, and it's called orange juice. And it, it's amazing. So you have your short stack, your uh, croissant, a glass of OJ, and your body is exploding with sugars and carbs. And what happens is that your blood sugar skyrockets. And when that happens, of course, your pancreas secretes a, uh, a surge of insulin. And when that happens, then your blood sugar in the next couple of hours will plummet. And that's a signal to your brain to seek out calories because your brain at that point is still burning sugar. So by mid-morning, you are seeking carb calories because you need a fix. It's like coming down off of heroin or something. You need a fix and you're breaking open the, the vending machine or hitting the coffee machine because you need to be picked up. And, uh, you know, that is in, in contrast to how we've been for hundreds of thousands of years. We've sought out sources of fuel for our bodies and for our brains that have allowed us to burn fuel like a, a candle, a slow burn as opposed to throwing gasoline on the flame that sure. allows us to uh, continue to hunt the prey and, and continue to, to find the food. So, you know, the notion of having to have three meals a day, I mean, I don't know who invented that, but I can assure you for more than 95% of our history, we didn't have, our hunter-gatherer forebears aren't going to stop in the middle of pursuing yeah. their prey uh, because it's lunchtime and they're on break. So, uh, but yet people need their mid-morning breaks and their lunch breaks and their mid-afternoon snack because they're cycling uh, through their blood sugar and having you know, these insulin surges that ultimately will pave the way for the body to finally say, you know what? I am tired of having insulin ring the doorbell day in and day out. And what the body starts doing is not answering the door. And what that means is the body becomes resistant to insulin ringing the doorbell. And insulin resistance then uh, paves the way for the blood sugar to get higher and higher because no longer are the cells responding to insulin and blood sugar starts to rise. And what happens then is the insulin signals have to get higher and higher coming out of the pancreas so that you, you'll still answer the doorbell. And what we see in our patients is we measure their fasting blood insulin levels, not just their sugar levels, but their insulin levels. And though their blood sugars may remain normal, when the insulin level starts to rise, it's the, the harbinger of problems because now they're developing insulin sensitivity. That paves the way for them to become type 2 diabetic. And why that's really relevant for me as a brain specialist is because <clears throat> type 2 diabetes is associated with doubling the risk of that disease called Alzheimer's, a disease for which there is no treatment. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that what you hear me doing is... Hey, Dr. Perlmutter. I'm back. I'm back, too.
Okay. Can you edit that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Okay, yeah, great. Because yeah, we had yeah. some good stuff there, I thought. Yeah, that was, was good. Uh, good rant. I loved it. A rant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. All right. Is your uh, your video back? I see you. Do you yeah. see me? No. Um, hit the video thing. Maybe it's crossed through. Uh, you know what? My video camera is not lit right now, so that means that we are not. Uh, hang on. Stand by. Let's see. How there about that? That work there for you, you? Yeah, perfect. Wow. Cool. Shut itself off. Yeah. Um, I could transition it and then cut it and edit it. Yeah, good. Okay. So what Do you have s- artwork for my books? Artwork? Just images. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Wonderful. Uh-huh. So what I'm hearing then is when you are able to rid yourself of that blood sugar roller coaster that's that's spiking and then plummeting, spiking and plummeting, and that causes you to get those sugar cravings or to eat the Ben and Jerry's or the chocolate cheesecake or whatever, that low blood sugar where you just have to have something, otherwise you're going to you know, punch someone in the face. Not only are you able to kind of regulate your uh, body in terms of like weight management or just overall feeling, but your mood definitely improves and you no longer have those intense feelings that you can't control. Well, that's right. And uh, now the exciting news is that the gut bacteria are playing in a very important role in regulating our appetite, in regulating our mood. And we culture within us Uh, the right gut bacteria by keeping them away from simple sugars and simple carbohydrates. So that's, that is, you know, a bit revolutionary information. Uh, You know, 90% of all of the peer-reviewed literature, uh, published literature on the microbiome has only been published in the past five years. So this is really new and exciting information. We know that uh, interventional trials, even giving certain uh, organisms a form of bifidobacter, bifidobacteria uh, longum, and a form of lactobacillus, lactobacillus helveticus, in, in one trial, actually had some fairly profound effects on regulating mood, giving bacteria probiotics and changing a person's mood. So, you know, we talk about this gut brain connection, yeah. and it's not just for protecting the brain in terms of inflammation, but it also has to do with mood regulation and even uh, research now looking at major depressive disorder in relationship to leakiness of the gut. And in fact, in, uh, in BrainMaker, I have a, a graph from one peer-reviewed study showing a higher level, a dramatically higher level of a marker of a certain chemical called LPS that's an indication of leakiness of the gut wall that correlates with major depression. Also, correlates with Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's, and even autism. So, you know, this gut-brain connection thing is really taking off, and uh, it's very, very exciting because there's no question this is going to open the door for myself as a researcher and myself as a clinician uh, for some, you know, really exciting new horizons. 90% in the last five years. That's fascinating. So they're really taking on this and, and diving hard into the research. That's right. And, you know, I I truly believe that when you recognize that your gut bacteria outnumber your body cells by a factor of 10 to 1, and that 99% of your, of Clark's DNA, 99% of the DNA in your body is bacterial, it's not the 23,000 that you got from mom and dad. 
it comes from the bacteria within you, and that you can threaten those gut bacteria and change the array and change the diversity of the bacteria living within you by making the wrong food choices, by taking antibiotics, by drinking water that is chlorinated, by eating foods that have been uh, contaminated with uh, Roundup or glyphosate because they are genetically modified. There are a lot of factors that go into how food affects the microbiome and the downstream effects of those changes. Let's talk about those 100 trillion bacteria we got down there, or just all, all over us for that matter. Uh, how does it get messed up? Do, are, are we just born messed up and we got to fix it? Because I'd assume we were born pretty good and, and then things get a little... That's a very good question. And uh, we are not all born okay and then it gets messed up. Uh, about a third of American children go through a specific process where they are born without a microbiome. Think about that. Hmm. And that's, the process is called cesarean section. So that we obtain our original priming uh, microbial baptism when we pass through the birth canal. Hmm. The vaginal birth canal is loaded with healthy, good bacteria that then inoculates the newborn with a a starter kit of bacteria that allow that child's immune system to develop in a very balanced way, allow that newborn to break down mother's milk uh, and extract nutrients, etc. When a child is born by cesarean section, Uh, he or she is deprived of that really important inoculation. And it is now thought that this is the reason that being born by C-section is associated with an increased risk, a twofold increased risk of autism, a threefold increased risk of ADHD, a significant increased risk of of, uh, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, food allergy, and even becoming obese as an adult. 50% increased risk for becoming obese and as, as an adult just because of cesarean section. Wow. Now, are, the, for, are, are those on the rise too? Are they something that's more well, popular? I, they're right now leveled off at 33% of all births in America, which is breathtaking. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that 33%, one-third of all births in America are complicated enough to require that procedure. Now, to be clear so, so, and to be fair... Uh, there is a time and a place where a C-section is life-saving uh, for mother or baby. It's, it's really important that we emphasize that there is a time and a place. It's a great procedure. But it's hard to imagine that a third of all births in America should be are complicated enough that they require yeah. a, a C-section because there are lifelong consequences in terms of that baby's health for the rest of his or her life that are imparted by that procedure. So is it that it's just exposed to bacteria for that short period of time, or is it that it's a very concentrated amount coming out of the vaginal birth canal that it can only get exposed to during that one time? Or, Well, you have to understand that this event of creating a new living organism is very, very complex. And there are factors from conception onward that are all refined and have evolved or have been created, however you want to look at it, to create, to create a being that will have its best chance of survival. So this transfer of material, of information, if you will, this horizontal transfer of information that takes place when a baby is born by giving this child 
genetic material. Basically, you have to think of it that way, that you're giving this child uh, thousands and thousands of genes, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bits of DNA that he or she won't get if he or she is born by C-section. So again, as I mentioned earlier, 99% of the DNA in our body is bacterial. So this is a huge lateral transfer, a horizontal transfer of information that is, is designed or has evolved, however you want to look at it, uh, to ensure the best chance of survival for that organism. And this is a process, this transfer of information at the moment of birth that is seen in all mammals, every animal that passes through the birth canal. It's seen in birds, it's seen in fish, it's seen in uh, insects, it's seen in uh, clams, oysters, and even sponges. So we're talking about Hmm. millions and millions of years that this process of using bacteria to transfer information that is the most up-to-date signaling system, uh, giving that newborn up-to-date information as to what environment to expect. Let me explain that for just a moment. Because the, the, the bacteria living within mother's birth canal uh, change. They change based upon her food availability, the season of the year that that baby is, uh, is born in, and all kinds of other environmental issues that shape that gut bacteria so that the final marching orders that mother is able to impart on her baby are given at that moment just before or at the moment of birth. So we're just beginning to understand that we have a, uh, um, a vertical transmission of genetic material down from mother and father, 23,000 genes, and we have this horizontal transfer of genetic information in the form of bacteria that happens through this mechanism of passing through the birth canal and gaining those bacteria to your microbiome where they serve as, as virtually a cloud like the cloud for um, your your internet your uh, your digital information that that child will refer to for information for the rest of his or her life. That's a pretty compelling thought, isn't it? <sighs> That's big. So uh, you big. know, my uh, my question would be then for those thirty three percent that are born through a cesarean section, is there anything they can do to acquire that gut microbiome? I mean, if this is really like you know, linked to all those things we were talking about, whether it's obesity, ADHD, or any sort of autoimmune disease. Is there any way we can, like, get... It's an excellent question. Yeah. Uh, Because, again, um, uh, C-sections are mandatory in some cases. Right. Uh, So in those cases, whatever that small percentage is, uh, what are you going to do? And uh, one researcher at NYU, and I actually talk about it in BrainMaker, has described a technique where a 4 by 4 sponge, a medical sponge, sterile sponge, is placed in the birth canal prior to the C-section. And before mother goes into the operating room and gets a major league blast of intravenous antibiotics, that sponge is removed and put in a moist, warm environment. When the baby's born, then that baby's face, mouth, nose, etc. are inoculated with this bacteria that were in the birth canal. Um, how much that's been studied is actually minimal, but I think it's a great start. But I, I do believe that there will be a commercial product available in years, in several years, that is designed to give those kids back some uh, semblance of good gut bacteria. So what can we do even as adults now? I, I know that a lot of people's gut biomes get totally trashed by either the foods they eat or the environment they're in or... 
uh, antibiotics they're taking or the chlorinated water you were talking about. What, what do we do? Where, do? where do we go from here? Excellent question. And uh, first, we talk about prevention. So let's, let's talk about what we can do to keep that from happening in the first place. And obviously, diet is very important. Restricting C-section is very important. I'd say that aside from diet, the biggest event uh, that challenges your microbiome or anyone's microbiome is exposure to antibiotics. And, you know, the antibiotics today are very, very powerful. They are broad spectrum, meaning, sure, they may take care of the bug that you're taking them to treat, but they're also going to wipe out a lot of the good guys. And unfortunately, literature is now coming up indicating that the changes in the microbiome that happen as in consequence to exposure to antibiotics are permanent. So that's an interesting thing to, con- to conceptualize when you recognize that four out of five Americans takes an antibiotic every year. And you may say, well, you know what? I am super careful. I've never had an antibiotic or, or I, I don't, certainly haven't had any during my adult years. But the point uh, I, I would make is that 75% of the antibiotics used in America today go into our cattle and poultry and Life eggs sucks, that yeah. we then eat. So we're not off the hook. Uh, so those are big issues. And, and we know that Roundup, or, or the active ingredient, which is called glyphosate, which, uh, of which there is residues on so many foods that are genetically modified these days, also has an effect upon changing our microbiome. So you know, before we get to, well, then what do you do to fix it? I really want to emphasize those points because you need to care for your microbiome because your microbiome, your gut bacteria, are fundamentally involved in every aspect of your physiology that keeps you healthy and functional. So it's, it's kind of like saying you, you got to prevent it. You can't just go to the supplements and the probiotics and all that That's stuff. Right. You got so, to constantly do so Those things are this. important, but, but well said. You've, uh, that's why I, I, I let off with that, yeah. uh, so keep that in mind. You know, we call these bacteria that live within us commensals, meaning they co means with and mensa means eat. Basically, that means they eat with us. They eat what we eat. And when you realize that, you begin to understand that, you know, they say when a woman is pregnant, she's, she has to be careful what she's eat because she, eating because she's eating for two. And I would say to all of your podcast viewers, each of us is eating for 100 trillion, meaning that every morsel of food that you consume moving forward after this podcast, you have to think about not just in terms of its fat, protein, carbohydrate, and micronutrient content for yourself in building a, a strong and healthy body, but what is, is that going to do? What are these food choices going to do for your microbiome? And that gets into answering your question about what should we do. And again, I think that recognizing that low, uh, simple carbohydrates rather and, uh, and sugars desperately threaten the microbiome, uh, that modified fats are not good for the microbiome, and that what you've got to be eating to nurture your microbiome are indeed uh, lots and lots of prebiotic fiber, foods that are rich in inulin. Uh, Go to the health food store and buy a product that contains prebiotic fiber, whether inulin or resistant starch from potatoes or uh, acacia gum, all excellent sources of prebiotic fiber. I think there are some very good, high-quality probiotics that are available in the health food store. You should consider those. And again, fermented foods are going to give you good levels of good, healthy lactobacilli, bifidobacteria, 
not the entire array that you need, uh, but at least these are good ways to get started. These, again, are the foods like the kimchi, kombucha, uh, sauerkraut, fermented vegetables, so many good fermented foods. But it all begins with our food choices, and that's what really got us into this mess. And, you know, the status quo uh, of the foods that people are consuming in Western cultures I think is responsible for our maladies in terms of degenerative diseases, not just because of their nutritional content, but because of how they're changing this microbiome. The microbiome being fundamentally important in determining the level of inflammation in your body. Why is that important? It's important because inflammation is the key player in such things as cancer, <laughs> diabetes, uh, uh, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, uh, uh, any number of neurodegenerative conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, all of these conditions are focused on inflammation and several of the ones I mentioned are actually autoimmune conditions which we now realize may have a huge uh, causality in terms of changes in the gut bacteria. We're coming up on our... Uh... Our call time—it's—it's it's flying by, but I'm—I'm I'm just curious. While I have you here, you know, we've talked about. You've only of, given me three questions so far. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk about the stuff. It's the whole—it's the whole body. We could talk for hours and hours. Um, I'm just curious. You know, we were talking about developing research, and you're clearly immersed in the stuff, and probably read more than. Our, all of our listeners combined. So what are you most excited about that's going on right now, either in the medical field or uh, with with brain? research or gut research? What's really getting you excited? <laughs> I gave a lecture yesterday to uh, well over a thousand people. And, and I, one of the studies I presented was a, a, a review of uh, how we're able to determine the uh, microbiome of our ancestors. We have technology now that allows us through the uh, evaluation of fossilized fecal material to determine what was the microbiome of people living as far back as 8,000 years before the present. Think about that. And I, and, and I said, God, isn't this exciting? And I realized what I was saying to the audience was, I'm really excited about research dealing with fossilized feces. Yeah, so you asked me what makes me excited. And, <laughs> and the audience got a real kick out of that. I said, can yeah. you imagine? That's what I'm excited about. But what I'm excited about uh, really is uh, in, you have to take a step back and realize I've been a neurologist for 30 years and I've had very few tools. And I am so excited that this new research looking at the microbiome is going to give me tools to help people, uh, to treat people in ways that we never fathomed. Now, let me give you an example. Um, I had a child come to see me last year with autism and the story was really quite interesting. His mother, during her third trimester of pregnancy, was forced to take antibiotics for the entire third trimester because of a persistent urinary tract infection. And this child had really aggressive pneumonia twice and uh, was treated with uh, antibiotics. So we knew that his microbiome wasn't probably in the best shape. So he was flagrantly autistic. And I discussed with his mother the emerging literature that shows that there's a strong correlation between changes in the gut bacteria and autism. There's almost a fingerprint of the gut microbiome when you, uh, that correlates with autism. Hmm. 
And uh, I, we discussed the literature, the work of a Dr. Derek McFabe up at the University of Ontario, Western Ontario. And uh, I said, you know, what we need to do for your son is figure out a way to reprogram his gut bacteria. And she said, well, what do you have in mind? I said, so let's start off with oral probiotics. We then moved on to giving those probiotics by enema. And then I had a discussion with her about a technique called fecal microbial transplant. And that basically means taking the fecal material with the bacteria from a healthy person and instilling it into the colon, into the intestines of her son. That's pretty mind-blowing for a neurologist yeah. to be having a discussion with a, a mother of a child with autism. She thought that was a terrific idea. And, under, and he underwent uh, six of these uh, procedures uh, at another uh, facility, uh, not at my office. I don't perform FMT or fecal transplant. And then I was uh, in Germany giving a lecture, or about to give a lecture, and I get a text from her. Uh, and in that text was a video of her son speaking to her. Uh, and it, was, it took my breath away. Uh, and then uh, she sent me another video of him having a discussion about what he was going to do later that afternoon, visit a friend, go out to lunch. Hmm. This was a child who had no ability to interact socially, who had virtually no communication skills. And, you know, a brain disorder that was treated really effectively by undergoing fecal microbial transplant. Now, was I thinking outside the box? Yeah, sure. But that's just the way it's going to be. You know, this isn't my first rodeo, and I understand there will be criticism. But that said, two things. First, University of Arizona has now just finished recruiting a large number of autistic children uh, to perform a technique called fecal microbial transplant to see what it does for them based upon the literature that shows that there are significant changes in the gut bacteria in autistic children. That's uh, number one. And uh, number two, you know, look at these results. Look at what happened in this case, this N of one uh, that I decided, you know, based upon current science might benefit from this. His mother wants the word to get out, and she gave me permission to post that video of her child hmm. and his story. And I have it on my website, which is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com, a video and you know an explanation, a story about this child, as well as a man with multiple sclerosis, another inflammatory autoimmune condition uh, that was treated at a clinic in England, undergoing fecal transplant, and regained the ability to walk without a cane. And his story and video I put on my website. So, And I was not the first person to treat MS doing that procedure. I didn't do the procedure, but I, I hooked them up with a clinic in Europe. Sure. So this is what excites me. It really excites me because look at the tools that we are now able to embrace that, have, that don't involve directly targeting the brain, that are targeting the gut. And the brain is looked upon as being the downstream effect. So... Um, I am, I am pumped up about brain science uh, as you and I have this discussion because of, of the doors that are now opening up for me in terms of leveraging this incredible information uh, to, to allow patients benefit where they didn't have it before. Beauties of modern medicine developing every day. It's phenomenal to hear those stories. And uh, Dr. Perlmutter, thanks for coming on the show. Grain Brain and, of course, um, the latest book. They're all in Barnes and Nobles and Amazon, correct? 
Oh, that's right. They're in uh, at, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and health food stores around the country. Brain yeah. Maker is the other other title. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Gosh, thank you, Clark. Have a great day. 